Last week, we finally made it out of chapter 2 after spending several weeks there. And counting this week, we'll probably get three weeks out of chapter 3 as we try to really pull and glean every bit of spiritual nutrition that we can get from the text. There's an expression that a lot of people, um, you'll hear a lot of people say today, is that I don't need doctrine or theology. Just give me Jesus. I don't need all that doctrine stuff. I don't need to study theology. Just give me Jesus. Folks, you cannot separate knowledge of God from the love for God. Because the more that you study and grow and the more that you come to know about the Lord through His Word, the more you come to love Him. The more that you and I will come to love Him. On Saturday, June 16th, 2008, as the day that I married Jesse, I really loved her. I loved her on that day, and I knew a lot about her. I wasn't just marrying a complete stranger. But on Sunday, August the 21st, 2022, I love her tremendously more than I did on our wedding day. Because I've come to learn so much more about her over these last 14 years through living together, through raising our children together, through growing in the Lord together, and through going through hardships together. I know what makes her smile. I know what makes her laugh. I know what irritates her. I know what makes her upset. But my love for her has grown because my knowledge and my understanding and my appreciation has grown for her because of how much I've learned about her. The same thing applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, his love for you will never change. It will never get any vaster or any smaller than what it is right now. It is an immeasurable love that was put on display in the cross. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, I quote it all the time. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the cross is where Christ displayed His love for us. Where God displayed His love for His church. And it is a love that is above and beyond all that you and I could ever ask or think. His love for us will never change. But our love for Him will only continue to grow the more that we come to know about Him. And that's what we're attempting to do every time we open the Word of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to open the Word of God and allow His Word to just wash over us and to become part of us so that we would love God more, so that we would love God, so that we would worship God truer, and that we would serve God better. 1 John chapter 3, I want to read verses 4 through 10. I want to speak to you this morning about family traits. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, these are the words of God. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth the law, transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, the children of, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth 
not his brother. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are not worthy to even open your word and look upon it, much less read it. I am not worthy to preach it. So God, I pray through your divine power, get me out of the way. Use me as your vessel to speak to your people this day. That you would encourage the hearts that need to be encouraged. That you would convict those that need to be convicted. That you would save those that may need to be saved. Throughout it all, God, we do pray that you and you alone would be glorified, honored, and praised. And that those of us who are of the family of faith, that we would be drawn to a closer walk with our Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. I'll get right into the outline. There's three points. There's the plague, there's the purpose, and there's the proof. Let's think about the plague. Verse 6. Look at it again. Uh, excuse me, uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 4 and 6. Look what it says. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. That brings the question, what's sin? What is it? I'm sure that you've probably heard it defined as missing the mark. Sin is often defined as missing the mark or without righteousness. But as we see here in the text, it is, sin is breaking God's law. It is defying God when we do something that he forbids. And it is also defying God when we neglect to do something that he commands. Popular American evangelicalism, the, 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 the popular churches in our day like to convey sin in terms of making mistakes. They don't want to use the word sin. They say that a person just makes mistakes. They make poor choices or that they have shortcomings. But here the word of God tells us that sin is the transgression or the breaking of God's holy law. Dr. R.C. Sproul, who went home to be with the Lord Jesus several years ago, and I'm going to quote him a couple of times. He once wrote, he said, sin is cosmic treason. Those of you who have ever spent any time in service know what that word treason is. It means acting in a manner that helps the enemy. And it's very, very, very serious. But Dr. Sproul said, sin is cosmic treason. What I mean by that statement was that even the slightest sin that a creature com commits against his creator does violence to that creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. That's what sin is. And so often it gets downplayed. It gets watered down. It gets looked over. Sin is taken very, is taken very seriously in the eyes of God. We just talked about Wednesday night. It was because of such grievous sin that God destroyed two cities. It was because of such sin that sent our Savior to the cross. We should not think of sin lightly. Sin is that cosmic treason against our God. And that's one way to, to, to think of it. But the, the, the scriptures also define it as, as the transgression of the law. It's defined as two other ways. First is uh, sin as a debt. Sin is an expression of enmity. And it's depicted as a crime. Let's think about sin as a debt. Think about sin as a debt. We who are sinners are described by Scripture as debtors that cannot pay our debts. You think about the Lord's Prayer. You think about the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 where the Lord Jesus gives us the model prayer, the, the outline for how it is that we should pray. He says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Take a note of that because that part's going to come in to play later on in the message. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then what's, what do we say after that? We say forgive us our trespasses. But in the scripture it says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. 
So in this sense, we're not talking about financial debt. We're not talking about how much money you owe the bank or how much money you owe some lender. We're talking about the debt that you owe to the eternal lender, God. God has the sovereign right to impose obligations upon his creatures. And when we fail to meet those obligations, we are debtors to our Lord. Think about sin as an expression of enmity. Enmity. Sin is a debt and now sin is an expression of enmity. What does that mean? That means a part when a part you think about how we were when we were outside of Christ. What does the Bible say that we are? Enemies of God. Romans uh, chapter five, verse 10. In our fallen nature, we are enemies of God through sin. Sin makes us enemies toward God. And that enmity speaks of that hostile nature. See, sin is not just merely restricted to what we say and what we do. It's not merely restricted to our actions, but it goes deep into the reason, the motive behind those actions. That old sin nature does not want to obey God. That old man does not want to do what thus saith the Lord. That old sinful nature wants to do what I want to do. What I will, not thy will. So, And when that happens, sin sets us at enmity with God. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we see the Apostle John equates sin with an attitude of lawlessness and rebelliousness against God. And that's a theme throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law, for it is not even able to do so. You see that all in the culture now. The hostility toward God is, in my opinion, it is at an all-time high. Now, I know that it's probably because we're all just so, uh, um, what's the word? There's cameras everywhere, so we're all so connected, right? There's cameras everywhere, so you see it. There's, there's more of a, a focus on it. Everybody has a platform, and now that platform is, by and large, used to show how much people despise God, hate God, hate the church, hate His Word, hate Christ. It's on display. You see that enmity. And also, sin is a crime. Sin is a crime. I've touched on it. That's what it says. John, John says that whosoever committed sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is committing crimes against God. When a person breaks God's law by lying, stealing, adultery, fornication, coveting, not honoring authority, blasphemy, and by not giving God the place that he is due, by giving that to something or someone else, when that happens, we commit a crime against the highest authority there is, God Almighty. And by nature, we want to compare ourselves to other human beings. Well, and, 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 well I'm not as bad as that one who's being convicted for murder. And we reason in our own minds and think that just because we're not as bad as someone else, that we must be okay. And it's not until we understand who God is that we gain a real understanding of the seriousness of our sin. One more time, I'm going to quote Dr. R.C. Sproul, and I wish I had the video that I could play of it. He was at a conference, a conference that he would host every year, the Ligonier Conference, and he was, it was during a Q&A session where the audience got to write in questions to ask the people on the panel and the question that came, that came to him, well, it was just asked of everybody on the panel, but he took charge to answer it, was, why was the punishment of Adam and Eve so severe? Dr. Sproul was right on the money when he said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God had told them, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And instead of dying physically, they died spiritually and lived another day and was clothed in, the, in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of the curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one that seduced him, the serpent, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And that punishment was too severe. 
What's wrong with you people? That's what he said. He said, what's wrong with you people? He said, I'm serious. That's the problem with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. Yes and amen. I agree with that. We don't know who God is. We talked this morning in Sunday school about prayer. And so often we get alone with God only when it's done, everything's done hit the fan and we're down to our just our, our, our wits end. We've got nowhere else to go and we should have been on our knees before him in the first place. But, and even then the only time we seem like that we go is when it's gotten to that point and it's help me, help me, help me. When it should be, we should be going to him every day. God, shape me, mold me, cause me to be more like Jesus, fashion me to be more like you. Help me to hate my sin. We get so offended at the severity of the punishment for sin as opposed to the realization of the severity of the one who has been sinned against. That is a truth that should drive every unbeliever to the mercy of God in the cross. And it's a truth that should cause every one of us believers to seek to walk so carefully in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, resting in the Spirit, relying upon the Spirit. That God help me not to act in rash, sinful ways. God, if I got a temper, don't let me keep using it as an excuse. God, help me to get over these hindrances that are keeping me from growing in your grace and your knowledge. That's how we should pray. Sin is indeed that cosmic treason. It's breaking God's holy law. It is offensive to God. And therefore, it's incompatible with the true believer. That that means it's just like oil and water. Oil and water don't mix, do they? No. Neither does sin and the Christian. Look what it says in the end of verse 5, end of verse 6. It says, and in him is no sin. The him is Christ. In Christ, there is no sin. And whosoever abides in him, that means to continuously dwell. We've talked about that for several weeks. To continuously dwell. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither have they known him. So here's another test to reassure the person of their salvation or to prove whether or not a person is in fact truly saved. Do they practice sin? Because the text says no one who abides, no one who continuously dwells in Jesus Christ is going to consistently live a life of sin. It's not going to happen. Will we stumble? Will we fall? Will we war with the uh, flesh and the devil with temptation? Will we war with sin? Yes. Will sometimes, will some days be more victorious than others? Yes. But we don't live a life that is completely given over with excuses to sin. We don't walk in the sinful lifestyle. We're not living in that darkness that Christ saved us from if we are truly in Him. If a person lives a lifestyle of continual sin, they do not know the Lord. They have not experienced Him as the Savior of their soul. Years earlier, the Apostle Paul taught the same truth to the Romans. Let me read that to you, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, and that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we walk, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. That is the baptismal uh, uh, verse that's usually quoted when a pastor baptizes somebody uh, for the, uh, into, uh, into the Christian faith. Right? Buried with him in baptism unto death, raised with him in the newness of life. And to walk in that newness, to walk in that repentance, to walk in that confession, to walk after the footsteps of the master. Let's keep reading for verse 5. For if we have 
been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. We're to walk in that resurrected life completely brand new. He who in Christ is a new creature, all old things have passed away, become all things have become new. Verse 6, for knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. In this, in, in, in this uh, sermon, we're going to look at, we're talking about two families. We're going to talk about two types of children. So there's two families, two types of children, but also in this life, there are two types of servants. Servants of Christ and servants of the devil. Servants of Christ, servants of the flesh, servants of the world, but ultimately servants of the devil. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 6, for he that is dead is free from sin, is free from it. We have been, we who are in Christ have been set free. And we're to walk in that freedom, that freedom to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not one that is bound up in legalistic changes like, well, I've got to walk the, walk the line to make sure that I don't do this and don't do that. No, freedom to serve. Like, Lord, I want to not do those things that I used to do prior to being a sinner, prior to being saved. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to live in that liquor bottle. I don't want to live smoking the stuff out of that can. I don't want to live running around carousing with anybody else but my wife. It means to walk in that resurrected, free life that's free to serve with all of your heart to glorify God. Sin is incompatible with the Christian. It's incompatible with the Christian. At salvation, believers experience a real cleansing of sin and a separation from their sin. That's what, that's what Paul just said. For he that is dead is free from sin. But again, again, we may be freed from sin, but we still live in a world that's under the sin curse. We still live in a world that is still under the sin curse. And unfortunately, we still do from time to time sin. The only difference now, as I've said in weeks past, we can't enjoy it anymore. We can't enjoy it anymore. For when we do, it's going to sit and it's going to fester in our hearts and fester in our spirits. And the Holy Spirit is going to rake us over the coals until we can't bear it any longer. And we have to confess it to the Lord. And what does 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 say? If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Point number two, the purpose. The purpose. Look at what it says, verse five and verse eight. It says, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sin. Verse eight, he that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of of the devil. So we see two conflicting purposes. Two families, two children, two purposes. Two purposes which are incompatible, which do not mix, which do not go together. They are at odds with one another. The purpose of Satan and the purpose of Christ. Let's think about the purpose of Satan. The purpose of the devil. Satan was created as a holy angel. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 tells us that Satan prior to the fall was Lucifer. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 14, describes Satan as having been created as a cherub, apparently the highest created angel. And he became arrogant in his beauty and status and decided that he wanted to sit above the throne of God. Now let me read that to you, Isaiah chapter 14. And I want you to listen in your mind. I want you to compare what I'm getting ready to read to you to what I quoted to you in the Lord's Prayer and to what we read in uh, 1 John. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's the devil. That is the devil. That is the plan and the purpose of the devil. That is what his purpose is. Is it? He wants to exalt himself above the throne of God. And we heard five times his I wills. He wants to do his will. He wants to do what he wants, not thy will. Not the will of God. So you think back. When a person commits sin, when a person sins at that moment, they're saying, my will be done and not God's will. Satan is a defeated foe because we're told in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15, it says, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Satan became the ruler of this world and he's known as the prince of the power of the air. He's known as an accuser in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's known as a tempter in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. A deceiver in Genesis chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. His, uh, his name means adversary or one who opposes. And he's also known as the devil and devil means slanderer. And even though he was cast out of heaven, he still seeks to elevate his throne above God. He tries to counterfeit everything that God does, hoping to garner worship himself and to encourage opposition to the kingdom of God. And you think about this. Every cult, every false world religion, Satan is the ultimate source behind them. Even those that want to guise under the heading of Christianity. Because there are people today that want to say they name the name of Christ. They want to say that they're a Christian, but they deny portions of the book. You can't do it. You can't do it. You cannot do it. It's either all or nothing. And the force behind that thought process that wants to pick apart and shred the word of God and cherry pick it is the devil, the slanderer, the enemy. But he is defeated. And one day his defeat will, will be uh, forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. And I can't wait for that day to come. I cannot wait for that day to come. I hope and I pray that God Almighty will let me stand front and center to watch that happen. I'm sick of sin. I'm sick of the devil. I'm sick of his attacks. I'm sick of his lies. And I'm ready for the day when he is forever and ever done and gone. So we only see the mention of the devil in verses 8 and 10. However, if you look at each verse of this passage as, say, a positive command, or if you look at every verse of the passage that says, this is the will of God, this is the work of Christ, then you can also take the negative of it and assume the rebellion and the work of the, of the devil. Look at look what it says real quick, real quick, like look at verse four again. Verse four, it says, whosoever commits sin transgresses the law for sin is the transgression of the law. Satan wants to live apart from God's law. Satan wants people to live apart from God's law. Satan wants to rule without God's law. Satan doesn't just want God's law to be broken. He wants it to be nullified and done away with. Won't ever happen. Verse five, look at it says. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him there is no sin. That's the positive. What's the negative of that? In, the positive is in Christ there is no sin. The negative, in Satan there is nothing but sin. In his rebellion, he forfeited his heavenly place. He forfeited his position. 
No longer does Lucifer glorify God as the most beautiful of the angelic beings, but opposes God as Satan. Now he can only appear as an angel of light. We're told that in 1 Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I can't remember at the moment. We're told that Satan can transform as an angel of light. Transform. That means only for a period of time. He can't stay that way. And he appears. He can only transform and appear that way. That means it's not his true nature any longer. Verse 6. Verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Abiding in Christ means remaining in Christ, relying on Christ, resting in Christ. Whosoever that lives a life that is led by the Holy Spirit does not practice sin. That's the affirmative. That's the positive. The negative is whosoever does not is led by the devil. And if they're led by the devil, they do sin. Verse 7. Look at it. Look at it says. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. The negative to that is he that does not righteous is not righteous. And who is that that does it? The devil. Those that do not practice righteousness are of the devil. Verse 8. Verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. From the devil sinneth from the beginning. He He that commits sin is of the devil. They're not of Christ. Their manner of life is everything contrary to what the word of God commands. Instead of living in holiness, instead of attempting to walk in holiness and to live that uh, uh, set apart life, they live lives of the flesh and self-gratification. They spend everything chasing what will make them happy, what gratifies them and their temporal feelings and urges. Instead of embracing truth and standing for truth, they cling to lies. They cling to and embrace lies. And instead of going to war with sin, they run to it and they celebrate it. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Whoever is not born of God does practice sin. The opposite, whoever is not born of God does practice sin because the seed, that's the Holy Spirit, because the seed of God is not in that person and therefore they do practice sin. They stay in it. They live in it. Verse 10, verse 10 is just like it is. In this the children of God are manifest and so are the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. That's the children of the devil. That's that antichrist spirit in the world. They do not love righteousness. They do not love truth. They do not love God. They do not love Christ. They do not love the Bible. They do not love the truth. And they in fact work with everything they have to attempt to tear it down. That's the purpose of the devil. What about the purpose of Christ? What about the purpose of Christ? Look what it says in verse 5, that he was manifested to take away our sin. Back down to verse 8. For this is the purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's the purpose of Jesus. Why was he born of a virgin in Bethlehem's cave? Why was he deity veiled in flesh? Why did he live perfectly and without sinning in thought, word, and deed for his entire 33, 33 and a half years? Why did he willingly and innocently die? Why was he put to death? Because he was who he said he was, the Son of God. And even though we say that he was put to death, you and I know the Romans didn't kill him. The Jews didn't kill him. Herod didn't kill him. Caiaphas didn't kill him. Pilate didn't kill him. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. For I have the power to lay it down. And I have the power to take it up again. So why did he lay it down? What was his purpose? He laid his life down upon the cross. And had the full, unvarnished wrath of God poured out upon him and die. And then three days later, rise rise again from the grave to do what? To take away our sin. That's why. That's why. That That is the purpose of Christ, to take away our sin. 
The sinless Christ died to make sinners sinless. That was his purpose. That was his mission. And listen to me when I say this. Jesus Christ did not fail. The Lord Jesus Christ did not fail. Listen to these words from the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6 beginning in verse 37. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I have come down from heaven, listen to this, not to do my own will. Christ came not to do his own will. Now, if you want to get real theological and get deep, yes, it was his will for him to come and die. His, 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 his he, he was the, the God man, so his divine nature, yes, it was all part of the plan, right? But would you know from in the garden, he said, if this cup would pass from me, right? His fleshly, his fleshly nature did not want, his human nature did not want to go through with it. He wanted to call an audible, wanted to do something else, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the spirit of the family of God. God first above anyone and everything else. God first, no matter what. I had something difficult brought to me this week. So I had to pray over and had to really work up a nerve to do and did a whole lot of praying about. And I had to, you know, really talk out loud between me and the Lord going up and down the road. And I remember something that Charles Stanley said, and I've said it before. And I know I'm going to butcher it, but it's something to the effect of obey God without fail. Obey God at all times. Obey God regardless. And let God handle the consequences. His will. So Jesus said, He came not to do my will, but the will of Him that sent me. And now this is the will of him who sent me that all that he has sent, that all that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have everlasting life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. And Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he died and the veil in the temple was torn in two. The tearing of that veil and his resurrection from the dead is proof it was indeed finished. It is indeed finished. Jesus succeeded in his purpose and he won, he bought, he paid for the salvation for every child of God that will be in heaven. It is indeed finished. Now all is a matter of drawing the sheep into the fold. God works through His people. God works through His children to go out into the highways, into the hedges, and with the, uh, uh, with the gospel, compel them to come in so that His house would be full. And that's what God is doing now. He's building His church. He's building His church. He's opening eyes, and He's bringing people into His kingdom, into His family. Look what it says at the end of verse 8. It says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus did all that he did to save sinners and to crush the head of the devil, the one who has been working evil since the fall in the garden. So Jesus' purpose, you can think about, is twofold, eternal and in the here and now. He saves sinners and delivers them from the penalty of sin. That's eternity. Future, eternal and future, right there, but also from the present. He saves them and delivers them from the practice of sin. If you have been saved by Christ and you know that it was your sin that caused Jesus to have to go to the cross, then you should not want to have anything to do with anything that put him there in the first place. You should not want to have anything that has anything to do with the death of our blessed Savior. Point number three, the, the proof. The proof. So it said there are two types of families and there are two types of children. There's the family of God and the family of the devil. Children of God and the children of the devil. Nowhere in the Bible do you find children of neutrality. 
Nowhere in the Bible do you find children of fence riders. Nowhere in the Bible do you find children who walk with one foot in one family and one foot in the other. So let's think about the children of the devil. The children of the devil. We see the proof or the evidence of the children of the devil again in verses 8 and 10. It says in the beginning of verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. And in this the children of God are manifest, verse 10, and the children of the devil also. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. In verse 8, those who practice sin, that is their lifestyle, it is their man, it is their everyday life. They do everything that the Bible says not to do. The work of the devil, they, they, they seek to do anything and everything to undermine God. They seek to do anything and everything to take glory away from God. Those that are of the devil can be false teachers that infiltrate churches and just seek to tear it all to pieces and then leave. And that happens a lot, a lot in our day. The Lord Jesus says in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 41, he says, you are doing the deeds of your father. But they said to him, we were born of, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. But Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. There are some people today that the Jesus Christ of the Bible, the true Christ is not worth their time or their attention. He's not good enough for them. They hear the truth of the word of God and it just re it's repulsive to their nature. And they want nothing to do with him. They want a Jesus that they've contrived in their own mind. A Jesus that sounds and looks and acts and talks a whole lot like them. The God of the Bible is not good enough for them. I go back to the Christ test of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If a person does not confess faith in the Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the Scripture, they're not a true child of God. They're not. I don't care what they say. If they do not confess the Christ of Scripture, they are not a child of God. And every day I'm reminded of that. I'm reminded of that. I see you know, everybody with their platforms, with their smartphones and their cameras and their blogs and this, that and the other. And, and, and true biblical Christianity is an offense to people. It is, it is an offense. It is as offensive to people as sin is to God. But so many people go around blindly believing that they are somehow saved and they're professing faith and salvation in a Jesus that they've contrived in their own mind. And, you, and, and I think of churches that, that cherry-pick the Bible. This past Wednesday night, we considered a chapter in the Bible that's one of the most difficult ones in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 19. And we talked about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we talked about the incestuous relationship of Lot and his two daughters. It's not something you really enjoy reading. But it made the book. It's there for a reason. If none other than, hey, don't do this. But so many people want to skirt tail around it. Want to dance around it. Don't want to have anything to do with anything in the word of God. And I told you before, no matter how long or short my little calling may be, something happens to me if, the, if Jesse and the kids want to put something on a tombstone, put what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian church when he was getting ready to leave them. I did not shrink to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He said, if God revealed it to me, I didn't hold it back unless he told me to. I gave you everything. I didn't worry about who I might offend. I didn't worry about who I might run off. I didn't worry about who might or might not put something in a plate. I did not shrink to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. But to some pastors, the word of God is offensive. Sin, the word sin is offensive and they have to say shortcomings and mistakes. And they dance around quote unquote problem passages. 
Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I hope you're not. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so Jesus is telling these, he's telling these Pharisees in John 8, he says that they are of their father. They're doing the deeds of their father. And, and, and they're like, our father's God. Our father is God. And Jesus says in uh, uh, John chapter 8, where is it at? John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you're of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks lies, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear because you are not of God. That's the children of the devil. That's the family of the devil. They're seduced by his lies. And they seek to fulfill the lusts of their flesh because he seduces them that that is ultimate fulfillment. That that's the lie of the world. You, you get one shot at this, right? You came from an amoeba. You came from an amoeba. You have no purpose. You were created with no purpose. Nothing to do with divine creation. You came from an amoeba. You got one shot at this. When you die, you go back into the dust. So while you're here, get everything you can, do everything you can, however you can, with whoever you can. That's what the world says. Those are the lies of the devil, and the people that embrace that and follow that are the children of the devil, are the children of the devil. What about the children of God? What about the children of God? The children of God were originally born children of the devil. We're not, we weren't born saved. We weren't born cleansed. We weren't born right with God. But by the grace of God, we were born again. By the grace of God, those of us who are in Christ were born again. The children of God are the new creatures with new hearts and with new desires. The children of God are the ones that seek to live lives that are pleasing to their heavenly Father. They might stumble. They might fall. might fall into sin. But that sin is not their normal everyday practice. Sin does not define their manner of life. They are those to, who seek to live, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all. Do it all to the glory of God. They are those that seek with all that they have to walk in the light. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. They don't make excuse for the darkness and say, Hey, well, now God just... Now just you know, sanctify the darkness. No, they don't walk in darkness. The children of God are the ones that when they fall into darkness, they confess it. First John chapter one, verse nine. That should be our first and foremost thing. Lord, I am sorry. Lord, I am, forgive me that I doubted. Lord, forgive me that I failed you. Forgive me that I acted that way. Forgive me that I thought that. Forgive me that I did this. God, help me to learn from it and not do it again Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And the children of God are the ones that try to keep the commandments of God, as in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, not to obtain or to hold on to salvation, but to display to the world, I've been saved. I've been changed. I've got a new father. I've got a new calling. I've got a new purpose. And I want to show that off to the world. The children of God are those that walk in the light, those that obey the Lord. And as it says at the end of verse 10, there are those that love the brethren. This is how the true child of God is defined. By the practice of their life and the love for the church. The practice of their life and the love for the church. That's how we display our love for Jesus. How we walk. How we 
carry ourselves. If we're walking after the footsteps of Jesus, our obedience to Him is how we show Him that we love Him. For He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, obey Him. Obey me. Do you love Him? Do you love Him this morning? Are you obeying Him? Are you trying to? Because that's how we display our love for Him is, 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 is by how we obey Him and how we love the other children that He saved. People might get on our nerves. They might rub us the wrong way. Church people I'm talking about. Rub us the wrong way. Get on our nerves. Say things that we don't necessarily agree with. Maybe get under our skin. But guess what? Jesus thinks they're to die for. He loves them too, so we should love them also. And this is how we can be assured that we're children of God. That we try to walk in obedience and we have a love for the brethren. That's how we can be assured that we truly have been born again. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word as I have unworthily tried to unfold it. Forgive me, God, for my failures and shortcomings is trying to preach your inspired and fallible and errant word. God, help us to be people that do want our practice, our routine practice of life to be that we walk after the footsteps of Jesus, that we walk in obedience to you. We're not going to get it right all the time. We're perfect. We've been made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're still living in an imperfect world with with still a fleshly sinful nature that won't be completely without sin until we're promoted to headquarters. So God, help us when we fail. Help us to quickly confess it. Help us to learn from it. Help us to embrace and to receive your mercies and forgiveness that are new every morning. We thank you and we praise you and we love you for it's in Jesus' name. Amen.